morning, church. It was so great to see so many of you last week at the picnic shelter here at Fellowship. Um, normally, I preach from the balcony, but it's a billion degrees up there, and so we're going to do things down here. Um, I'm still going to sweat profusely, so deal with that. I wanted to uh, share with you a couple of things. One of the things that I have not done or we have not done is communicate really well about giving in our church. And recently, our leadership team has, has kind of walked through our spending and our giving patterns um, as a church, meaning all the money that's come in over the last five years and what our budget looks like. And we've seen some really, really cool things. And I just wanted to share, you, share with you really quick what those are. One of, the, one of the main ones is a few years back, um, we retooled our budget and we broke it down around our kind of desire to be a church that wanted to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And we looked at our budget and we're like, man, we're spending a lot of money on Sunday morning activity, really. We were, we're spending a lot of money on, 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 on the Sunday morning event. And not enough, really, on our, our giving as a church, really, to our community, to people in need, to church planting, to other endeavors, mission work, whatever. And because of that, we changed focus, we changed direction, and we changed strategy. And I just want to let you know that it is really evident in um, the checks we've written as a church, um, the money we've given out, the percentage of of what we used to give and what we now give away is 100% or more, 150%. I, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's like a phenomenal thing to watch. And the amount of money we spend on our Sunday event has gone down. And so it's been a really cool thing. And so if you're interested, if you've never given to our church before, know that we take uh, what we do with your money very seriously. And we put it uh, as best we can to the right places. So if you haven't given yet before to our church, it's a really easy way to do that. And it's through our online um, website portal um, that you can, you can set up kind of a monthly thing or you can just do a one-time thing. Some of you have been just faithful. Even in the midst of the pandemic and our new way of operating, you've been so faithful in giving and being a part of this. And I just want to encourage you, if you've kind of pulled back from that, because um, you're not sure what this new way of being a church is all about, I get it. Uh, but we'd love for you to be involved in what is happening and, and how God is moving. Remember, we're in a 35-day period starting last Sunday where we are praying for the life of our church, praying for God's direction. We're in an in-between space right now. And I really think that God is wanting to transform us and move us and change us and shape us. But we have to be patient and we have to wait and listen and uh, hold all uh, the uncertainties and not knowing what's going to happen, just holding that before the Lord. So keep praying for us as a church. Today, we are in uh, the next two weeks, really, we're in the hinge of Mark's account of, of Jesus. Up to this point, uh, chapters one through eight are, the king is here, is this the announcement? The king is here and his name is Jesus. And, and really through chapters nine through 16 are, um, the king is here, but he's not the one that you were expecting. 
And so I think it's super important for us over the next two weeks to wrestle with, you know, our vision, our version of Jesus. So it starts, this passage starts in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. God, open our hearts, open our eyes. I think of this first passage is about seeing God open our eyes. Open our eyes as a community. Open our eyes as individuals about who you are. Let us uh, encounter you in a more clear way. Even today, as we still our hearts, as we, as we settle our minds, as we await the Spirit, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, starts in verse 22. Here we go. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside to the village, outside of the village. When, they had, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Okay, so in these days, uh, rabbis would actually use their saliva as medicinal property, which is super weird, I get. The man looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Okay. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Kind of a weird story. Um, it's about a, a blind man and, and, and Jesus is trying to keep him from going into the village to spread more news about him. Um, and it's, it's weird. It's a weird story because he's healed in stages, right? I mean, couldn't, wasn't Jesus powerful enough to just heal him all at once? Yeah. But maybe there's something else going on here. I mean, on the one hand, this is a story about a blind man getting healed. But on the other hand, it's not really a story about a blind man getting healed. It's much bigger than that. See, Mark is genius. In this whole time, he's been talking about seeing but not perceiving, listening but not hearing. He's talking about who he is. And the disciples are walking around with Jesus the whole time, and they still don't get who he is. They're still, their eyes are blind. To who Jesus is. And so the story is interesting because the word see or a variation of it is used nine different times. Nine different times. Blindness. And ultimately this is a story about a guy who gets healed by blindness, but it's also a story about his blind disciples following him. They don't see Jesus all at once. It's fuzzy. It's, it's, it's not clear. It, like trees walking around, right? And Jesus and his disciples, it says in verse 27, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi is a, it's an interesting city. It's an interesting village. And it's up high. You can see, it, you can see over a whole valley, and it's a pagan city. It's basically a strip mall of gods. 
And stacked right next to each other are different temples that you could go and, ver and worship different gods based on what your needs were. Fertility, business, travel, you could hit them. Well, tacked on to the end of the mall of worship is a temple for Caesar. Herod rebuilt, uh, he, he like renamed this city and built it as a worship to Caesar, tacked on to the end. And it's Herod the Great, and he was trying to score points with Caesar. Remember, Herod wanted to be king of the Jews. And he asked Caesar for this, and it was just, and we go back a few messages, we talk about that. But why does Jesus show up at Caesarea Philippi to have a conversation with his disciples about who people say he is? Well, I think it's pretty important. I think it's a really important place because the worship of Caesar was everywhere. And Jesus is showing up and saying, hey, I'm not a king. I am the king. I am Messiah. And Jesus is, is the reality in which all other kings are the parody. And so he's asking the disciples, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, here's what's cool about this passage, is it's a passage it's not only for the disciples at the time of Jesus, but it's also a passage for us because the question is the great question we all have to wrestle with. Who do you say I am? Throughout history, Jesus has been labeled a great teacher. He's been labeled a crazy person. He's been labeled the first feminist. He's been labeled a Republican and a Democrat wrong and wrong? Or is he the embodiment of the creator God? That's the wrestle. Who is this guy? So Peter opens his mouth, which is, in this case, not bad. It gets bad in a second, but Peter opens his mouth because he's maybe the de facto spokesperson of the disciples. I don't know. But Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Now, uh, you are the Christ. Now, Christos is the word here, and Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And Mashiach, over time, comes to mean the anointed one, and this is the one that would come. This is the, the, the great uh, ambassador sent by God that would come and make everything right, put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And the tension here goes back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, when Mark opens the account of, of his account of Jesus, basically giving the reader a clue that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, but the tension is, is that the, the characters in the story don't know yet that this is Messiah, that this is the Son of God. And so when Peter says, no, you are Messiah, 
Jesus, um, he, he warns them. Actually, in verse 30, he warns them not to tell anyone about him. What is up with that? I mean, it's just like, how long are we going to keep this a secret? Uh, why would he do that? Well, the Messiah is a political, a political, politically charged title. It's not just a spiritual title. And Christ, since Christ means king, to claim to be king, especially in a city like Caesarea Philippi, would be treasonous. I mean, he wouldn't even make it to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. What Peter means by you are the Messiah and what Jesus means by Messiah are two very different things. That's the key here. Because a vast majority of the people like Peter, who grew up in a very hyper-vigilant, hyper-Jewish, religious uh, time, viewed the Messiah. They had an expectation of Messiah as being a warrior revolutionary um, who is going to usher in Israeli global domination. That's what Peter has in mind. That's what the disciples have in mind. And what's interesting is that, that this isn't something they just came up with. This is something that had been handed down generation after generation after generation. And had been backed up by experiences. Experiences with Roman soldiers, experiences with taxation. So they see Jesus healing people. That's power. They, they see Jesus having control and power over the demonic, over evil forces. Man, this is our guy. This is our guy. But Jesus is basically saying, yes, I'm Messiah, but I'm not the, not the Messiah you think I am. Check this out in verse 31. He then began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, here's the, here's the wild thing. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching in parables. I think it's really clear. Mark's like, he's not teaching them in parables here. He's just laying it out there. He's like, guys, no metaphors here, no parables, no... No story time. This is what's got to happen. What's crazy for Peter and these disciples is that the people they looked up to in their religious community, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Jesus saying that they have to reject him. Well, how could you be Messiah? How could you be Messiah if the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law don't back you up? How can that happen? So Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop the truck. Peter pulls him aside. He says, hey, man, I think we're maybe not on the same page here. You're Messiah. And if you're Messiah, you can't suffer. You can't die. And, and, and we've got to be, everybody's got to be behind you. Otherwise, there's no revolution. It's an unheard of idea, really, for Peter. Blows his mind. Blows his mind. 
He's experiencing cognitive dissonance in this moment. What his thinking was about who Messiah was and what Jesus is actually laying out are very different things. And he doesn't like Jesus' version at all. See, few connected the idea of the prophecies in Isaiah about the suffering servant with the warrior, son of God, son of man language. And they just thought that the Messiah would dominate. They just thought that the Messiah would conquer. But the Messiah that Jesus is laying out is a different kind of Messiah. A Messiah who conquers death. A Messiah who conquers, uh, has victory over sin and the power uh, that it has on us as human beings to enslave us. The selfishness and the pride and the and and all of the, the stuff that comes up in us, that Jesus actually is the Messiah for that. He is the Savior of that. He's the one that conquers all of that. And Peter rebukes Jesus. says, no, 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 no. Let me be your campaign manager here. That's not how this goes. Now, we just need to cut Jesus, uh, Peter some slack here. Um, he was trained to see Messiah as being something different. And he's seeing Messiah through a lens that he's trained to look through. But when Jesus, it says, verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, Top three things you don't want to hear from Jesus is, get behind me, Satan. You just don't, that's just not. He's like, you're standing in the way. Jesus says, you're standing in the way of what I need to do. Get behind me and follow. Get behind me and follow. Fall in line. In this moment, Peter is an adversary to the cross. And the word Satan is, is, is it's not a, you know, you know, like a perfect name. It's not a name. It's, 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 it's you're, you're the adversary. You're an adversary of what I need to do. You're, you're, you're at against what I need to accomplish. And Peter's saying, don't go that way. Go a different way. Go the way that we want you to go. Go the way that we expect you to go. He's not seeing Jesus clearly. He sees Jesus with power, and he would like Jesus to use that power in a way that is violent and, and, um, and, and makes things happen for him and for the people. So how did Peter get here? How did Peter get to this belief in who the Messiah was supposed to be. Well, I think there's three things that are really important. We'll throw these on the screen. The first one is this, a misreading of Scripture. I think that it, many of the teachings about who Messiah would be were misinterpretations. I don't think they were full interpretations. And it is the reading of prophetic warrior language in some of the prophetic and the Psalms and in some of the, um, you know, just the, the, the teachings in the Old Testament 
And those things got highlighted. Those things got interpreted by the Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers of the law. What didn't get put, put, put into the picture, and this is where the misreading of Scripture comes, is the idea of a suffering servant in Isaiah. That's, that's language we're not comfortable with. I mean, we're not comfortable with it now. Think about it. We don't like people who suffer. We like powerful people. We like people who dunk. We don't like people who get dunked on. We like uh, aggressive and, and powerful and beautiful and strong and strategic people. We don't like people that bend and give up and surrender. We don't like that. Turns out, if you're getting oppressed by a group of people for a long time, you're going to begin to gravitate towards those passages of Scripture that bolster your idea of who you want Messiah to be. So there's a misreading of Scripture. The second one is this. Peter's ignoring the curvature of his own heart. I mean, Peter wants to be Peter wants uh, Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that brings forth all of this stuff that he wants to have happen. And the reality is Je uh, Peter's like in league with Jesus. Like he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And so if Jesus becomes that warrior Messiah, Peter's on the inside. Peter's got a front row seat and a backstage pass. He gets to be a part of it. So the curvature of his own heart is this selfishness that I'm going to be part of something big. People are going to remember me. In fact, just in a few passages, uh, the disciples argue about who will be the greatest in your kingdom. They're arguing about that with each other. It's crazy. Peter had a vested interest in Jesus not being who he actually was. Vested interest. It's much of the reason why Peter disowns Jesus a few pages from now. It's messed him up. Third one is this. The worldview that, that Peter was born into. We all are born into a worldview. And it's a pair of glasses. It's a lens by which you see everything through. It shapes and it colors and it frames you, the, your view of the world. That's what a worldview is. Peter grew up being taught, being sung the songs of Messiah. It was a part of the fabric of his whole world. It was his worldview. It was how he was taught to think. Because of these three things, okay, uh, you know, misreading a scripture, the curvature of, you know, Peter's own bent in on himself, sinful nature, we all have it. And because of his worldview, because of these three things, Peter's vision of Jesus was so off that he was actually an adversary of Jesus in that moment. Now, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Here's, here's what I think is happening here. 
you know, Peter pulls him aside, but then Jesus turns to the disciples to rebuke Peter. I think he's actually rebuking the disciples too. I think they were all feeling what Peter was feeling. And let's just wade into this comfort, this discomfort a little bit together, me and you. Are we any better at Peter? You know, are we any better than Peter on this one? Um, I mean, this is humbling. We all have a vision of who Jesus is. And maybe we think we see Jesus super clear. Or maybe you're a little bit more in reality and you see him more kind of fuzzy. But you know, kind of like a tree walking around, right? Like we, we read earlier. Listen to what Randolph Richards says in this book. This book I've quoted for you years for years now. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. He says, this misreading of Scripture arises from combining our individualism with a more subtle, deeply hidden, and deeply rooted aspect of our Western worldview. We still think the universe centers around us. This is really important for you and me to face. We think we have Jesus figured out. We think we know who Jesus is. We think we have a good idea of what Jesus is about. And we're wrong. And there are times when how we see Jesus and what it means to be in the kingdom is so off that it's satanic. That it's adversarial to Jesus. It's easy to pick up stuff we like about Jesus and, and walk around the things that we don't like about Jesus. We all do this. We all do it. And we do it mostly at a subconscious level, meaning... We all do this, we, we're all, we all have a worldview, and we don't really know how we got it, but we got it. And we all read scripture uh, from our own perspective as modern Americans. And, and then we have this funky thing going on inside of us. We have our own heart's ambition, and we're so steeped in individualism and consumerism that Jesus ends up fitting into that. But it's actually adversarial to Jesus. Um, and we were born into this. So like this idea of this is the greatest country ever. And we have a strong military. And we have everything at our disposal. And it, it leads to this distortion of who God is and who Jesus is. Um, we tend to see Jesus sometimes as a genie in a bottle. Or a life coach or a therapist. Um, a God who exists for my mind and my body and my heart. And we overlap these three things, misreading scripture, our own selfish uh, desires, our own self-centeredness, and, and our own worldviews, and how we're formed. And bam, it's easy to get off track with who Jesus is. We have to wrestle with this. Because the question is not if we're off, the question is, uh, is where are we off? And this is not a guilt trip. You're like sitting there going, are you calling us satanic? Kinda. Me too. I mean, if I'm really honest, I don't like this whole go to the cross thing. I think I would have been like Peter. 
Like, really? I think it'd be way cooler to, to use your power the way I've just seen you use your power. We have things that do not fit in Jesus' plan. We have expectations and assumptions of what we want Jesus to be and do, and they're not part of the deal, and they're adversarial to the way of Jesus. And I don't, Listen, I don't want to hear that either. I don't want to hear it either. I don't want to hear that I'm an adversary to Jesus. But I think two things are really important for us to do. Recognize our blindness. Just like the first passage, we are blind to who Jesus is. And we may have had uh, some, some experiences in our life to who Jesus is, and we can see a little bit. We see shapes. We see people. They look like trees walking around. But we really don't see everything clearly. Paul says in one of his letters that now we see in part. But one day we will see in full. One day we will see clearly like this blind man who was healed in stages. The second thing is really important. Church, we've got to read the Gospels. Not just here and there. We need to counter who Jesus is every day. And we need to wrestle with the things that we see in these pages about who Jesus is. I mean, if you come upon something that doesn't quite fit your concept of Jesus... My encouragement is to don't walk around it, but lean into it. Lean into it. Wrestle with it. Don't try to explain it away or rationalize it or massage it. Like, face it. And yeah, this story is intense. And here's what's so amazing. We think, here's, I, I think this is amazing. We think, scholars think that Peter is the source of much of Mark's material. That Peter is... Mark isn't ghostwriting for Peter. Mark is a literary genius. But we think, I mean, check out Matthew chapter 16. The same account, it's just different. And many scholars believe that Peter's like, uh, no, you need to put this part in here. That was when I had it really wrong. And I tried to stop Jesus. But I recognize now that I had it so wrong. People need to know. And it's important to keep in mind that the expectations that Jesus is going to reject um, are those found amongst his followers. The most among us. They're in us. He's going to reject those expectations more so than he's rejecting the expectations of the people who, who aren't his followers. I mean, we see this over and over again in the whole account. There are many people that, that get it right but they're not on the inside. Meaning if Peter can be off and he spent 24-7 with Jesus for two years, can you and I be off? I mean, just a little? Can we? Yes. If Peter can get through that distortion and missing of Jesus, then so can we. And it says in verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You know, this idea is each follower must put to death their attempts to shape the kingdom um, out of their own, you know, human reasoning. 
And, and here's a tricky passage that a lot of people take out of context. Um, you've probably heard the phrase, my cross to bear. Uh, this is not what you think that means. Jesus is talking about a whole different version of my cross to bear. Um, I've heard it said, like some people are like, my cancer was my cross to bear. No, it wasn't. Um, because a lot of people have had to deal with cancer. Cancer is a very human thing. And I know it's just a phrase, but I just want to be really clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about my cross to bear. Because the cross was not a piece of art or jewelry. It was a barbaric, inhumane symbol of shame for the riffraff of society. So if you were a Roman citizen, you did not get crucified. Um, it was dehumanizing. Crucified in, in, in Hebrew terms meant cursed by God. And so to be crucified... When Jesus says, I must suffer and die, uh, the death, a death in following Jesus and shame in following Jesus are two of the things that happen if you follow. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, we're all going to die, but dying to ourselves, dying to our ambitions, dying to what we think, not only Jesus should be, but our life should be, that's the goal. That's the, the death we've got to die. Listen to what Tim Gombas says. He actually brings about a whole new layer to this. He's a, he's a commentary writer. He says this, Followers must surrender any notion of defeating the Romans through violence, cultural triumphalism, or hopes for military victory and independence. In effect, Jesus is saying, Identify yourselves as shamefully defeated ones with reference to your enemies, the Romans. Surrender and embrace the loss of the hope of establishing the kingdom through force. Follow me on the road to rejection, betrayal, and death in the hope of resurrection. According to Mark's gospel, Gamba says, the community of Jesus' followers is not marked by triumphalism, but by surrender and loss embodied through service in hospitality. Now, why would I sign up for that? I mean, that's that's a tough thing to, to lay down, right? Overcoming your enemies, that's a tough thing to put down. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In our culture, gaining is about our identities. Gaining achievements, gaining status, gaining wealth, gaining retirement, gaining comfort. Gaining security. And Jesus is saying, if you really want life, you got to put it down. Man. He's saying, finding your psyche in me now, the reason why I say psyche is, psyche is the word here. It's a Greek word for soul. 
Then he was ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his, father glory, in his Father's glory and holy angels. Now, really fast, this whole idea of the Son of Man is out of, straight out of Daniel. And it's beautiful imagery about who the Messiah would be, who the Son of Man was. And it's a famous prophecy. A divine King Messiah who comes in glory to usher in the rule and the reign of God. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of Man. And I'm the suffering servant. And it's messing with your brains, I know. And if you take up your cross and you follow me down that path, you can be part of my kingdom. You can be part of it. Not through power, not through manipulation, but through suffering and serving. Now look at this account of John. I love this. This, I think, just is, this wraps us up. John 13, 3 through 5, check this out. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what does he do? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a, a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The paragraph starts off with Jesus knew he had all this power come from God, that he was going back to God, that he came from God. So what does he do? He serves. Listen to this quote from Greg Boyd. He says, what do you do when you know you have all the power to do anything you want? Well, if you are Jesus, you put a towel around your waist and start washing the dirty, smelly feet of your disciples. The very disciples you know are going to soon abandon you in your hour of greatest need. This is the humble, other-oriented, cruciform character that Jesus displayed throughout the cross-centered ministry. This was the way of the cross. So what do we do? Jesus is saying, I'm the king, but I'm not the king you're expecting. And I'm going to go to the cross to die. And if you want to be in my kingdom, you need to follow me and die too. Because the, on the other side of death is life. Because on the other side of death is resurrection. That what you thought before is different. There's one last thing I want to show you. And it's the closing, one of the closing paragraphs in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I love this. C.S. Lewis kind of paraphrases what Jesus has just said here. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really your, yours. Sorry, nothing, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself 
and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray and talk about this together. God, grateful and humble. God, shake out of us wrong thinking about who we think Jesus to be. Take away these selfish ambitions inside of us. Make more clear who Jesus is for us so that we can be more like him. Amen.